Good morning. My name is Josephine Craker and my pronouns are she, her. First, before I start into my sermon, I would like to give a special thank you to Heather Peters, who always <laughs> is sitting in the background making me smile, but also always reads through my sermons and usually gives me the best lines of the sermon. So if you hear a line and you're like, ooh, that's really good, uh, it was probably Heather. So just remember that. And also if you hear a bird in the background, that is our bird, Rose. How do we move through suffering together? How can we empathize with people's suffering if we haven't experienced the same things? What does it mean to give what we have? Years ago, I watched a movie called Millions. It's a beautiful film and I highly recommend it. It centers on a child named Damien. Damien is enamored by the lives of the Catholic saints. He has memorized many of their biographical details as well as the miracles that got them their sainthood. Over the course of the movie, he has numerous conversations with saints, including St. Peter, who gives him an eyewitness account of the story we heard in our scripture reading today. The way that Peter tells it, the miracle happened when the young boy stepped forward to offer his meager lunch to share. Slowly, others placed what little they had into the baskets as they were passed around. Soon there was enough for everyone. The boy with the fish and loaves didn't set out to do a miracle. He was just thinking about lunch. Nothing fancy, nothing we would necessarily characterize as miraculous. I see this retelling of the feeding of the 5,000 as a helpful image for what it means to collectively move through our lives, meeting our basic needs, suffering, and of course, celebrating. We are called to community living, to laugh with those who laugh, mourn with those who mourn. But how exactly do we do this? Sometimes we, as a community of predominantly white privileged settlers, might feel like we have nothing meaningful to give those who are experiencing discrimination at the hands of systems that have been designed to keep us thriving while others suffer? Do we offer our financial or material excess, which usually amounts to a band-aid over a stab wound? Can we even begin to empathize with those who experience discrimination when we have never experienced it ourselves? It is scary to face our own privilege. We can feel defensive because even though we have benefited from the white supremacy and patriarchy that is woven into the fabric of our society, we may not have been conscious of it. We have probably had very difficult life experiences that make us feel decidedly unprivileged. And yet, as a white person, I must also consider all the experiences I haven't had because of my skin color. For example, I am not followed around in stores while shopping. I did not need to approach multiple lenders in order to buy a house. I haven't been asked to be a representative for my entire culture at any event. And even as a white trans woman, I have not had my life threatened 
whereas trans women of color are murdered almost daily in progressive countries like the United States. We must reckon with our privilege. We must set aside our defensiveness as we sit down at the table of dismantling white supremacy, colonialism, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia. We may feel paralyzed in these situations and conversations. Maybe you have heard of savior complex, the idea that privileged people swoop into a situation and fix it, usually by imposing colonial, Christian, cisgender, or heteronormative ideas onto a community. Once I learned about this kind of colonialism, I became much more wary of speaking or acting in places where I felt the spotlight of my privilege shining brightly. But we can listen. And listening can look like a lot of things. Finding social media accounts that center the experiences of populations experiencing discrimination and violence, including Black, Indigenous, people of color communities, women, and transgender people. Reading books written by and about marginalized communities, both fiction and nonfiction. Attending lectures by people from marginalized communities. Becoming a pen pal with an incarcerated person, thereby humanizing the plight of those in prison. And so much more. It is hard to know what to say or do when we hear these stories, the lived experiences of those who are oppressed. In truth, empathizing with someone who is suffering or struggling is more about what we do than what we say. We can adopt an attitude of learning, listening and accompanying those who have been silenced by systematic oppression, like in the cases of the Me Too or Black Lives Matter movements. As we listen, we acknowledge the pain expressed and we express gratitude for their vulnerability. And we ask questions like, how can I accompany you in your, and your community in this work? Once we take time to listen to the stories people are telling about their experiences, something miraculous happens. We can see the humanity in these movements. It's no longer about a hashtag or pronouns or political correctness. We want to stand with these people because they are people, people like us, people who laugh, cry, celebrate, and mourn. We see humanity, we see the humanity in every person standing up to speak of these injustices, and we want to stand with them. We want to amplify their voices because what they have to say matters. What they are saying affects us all, no matter our station in life. Another way we can contribute to the lunch of the 5,000, so to speak, is something that historically has been part of the Mennonite faith, mutual aid. An Anabaptist and Mennonite reading of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as our early attempts at imitating the early church's communal nature, led to living in tight-knit communities, helping those who, need, who needed it by sharing wealth communally. The history of this history of Anabaptists practicing mutual aid is both rich and inspiring. Now, mutual aid is a bit of a radical idea. 
as were the Anabaptists themselves. What can it look like now in a world that really likes to keep things on an even keel? At this point, I want to hand it over to Dean Spade and Big Door Brigade, who have put together a video explaining what mutual aid can look like in a wider societal or secular context. A lot of us are overwhelmed, pissed, and scared. I don't wanna wait till the next election. I don't wanna just write my congressperson and hope that they'll do the right thing. I don't wanna just post things to the vacuum of social media. I don't wanna just make statements about things. I wanna change how things are. There are a zillion things we can do and people are coming up with new ones all the time. This video is going to focus on mutual aid projects, what they are and why we should be developing them right now. Mutual aid projects are a form of political participation in which people take responsibility for caring for one another and changing political conditions, not just through symbolic acts or putting pressure on their representatives and government, but by actually building new social relations that are more survivable. During recent flooding and storms, we saw mutual aid in action as people helped each other survive. Mutual aid isn't just for those big weather disasters, it is also for the daily routine, life-threatening disasters of capitalism and white supremacy. People who are pissed about police and prisons are doing mutual aid work like creating prison letter writing projects, where people get connected to pen pals in prison to build relationships, help prepare for release, help prisoners have advocates on the outside, and help build a movement against policing in prisons that is informed and led by the people who know the very most about how the system actually works. Some people are creating jail support programs where people get together to make a schedule and agree to be outside their local jail on that schedule and greet anyone getting out and help them get what they need. Maybe a ride, clothes, a phone to call contacts, information about services or benefits. Some people are organizing community bail funds, revolving funds that can pay people's bail so that they are not locked up while they try to prepare for their defense. Money bail systems are one of the ways that poor people and people of color are given the worst chances in the criminal system. Court support projects are where people coordinate to accompany someone facing charges to their court dates, ideally by packing the court with supporters each time so that no one has to go alone, and sometimes to influence lawyers, judges, and jury by showing their support for the criminalized person. Some people are coordinating ride systems to help families visit prisoners who are being held in facilities far from home. In Oakland, the Oakland Power Projects are about strengthening people's skills to respond to community emergencies in ways that minimize police contact. When you call 911 for a health emergency, the cops come too, and that often leads to violence. The Oakland Power Projects is about training the community to respond to health emergencies, including mental health crises, chronic health problems, and acute health emergencies, so that people don't have to call 911. People who are scared about the emboldenment of ICE and Border Patrol and increasing deportations are doing things like forming rapid response networks where people warn each other about immigration raids and help each other hide, and helping immigrants do safety planning in case they get detained so that someone is ready to take care of their kids and elders. Some rapid response projects are even working on training people to show up and physically stop ICE from taking someone away. Imagine if we built that kind of power to stop arrests through rapid mobilization of a lot of people to outnumber cops. No More Deaths, an organization in Arizona, works to save the lives of people crossing the border by putting food, water, and supplies in the harsh desert areas where people who are crossing often die from the conditions. 
There are so many mutual aid project possibilities because there are so many intense ways people aren't having their needs met in the brutal systems we live under. Like food projects like Food Not Bombs, projects where people organize temporary housing for people coming out of prison or foster care by opening their homes to each other, childcare collectives where people watch each other's kids so they can go to political meetings, court, or jobs, projects where people accompany vulnerable people like trans people or people with disabilities to medical appointments or public benefits offices and hearings, projects where people make sure neighbors being pushed out by gentrification have good access to information about their housing rights and accompany each other to housing court, help people read documents and defend themselves from eviction, projects where people protest landlords who are refusing to make repairs or give back security deposits by directly protesting at those landlords' houses and businesses. The messages of this work are, the government is so we can't rely on it. You are not alone. The system is the problem, not the person being targeted by it. And we're going to take matters into our own hands and help each other survive right now, rather than expecting help from the same systems that have a clear history of causing harm. Mutual aid projects don't just help with the current disasters, they help us prepare for the ongoing disasters that are emerging because of climate chaos and crumbling infrastructure. When we build cooperative projects, practice making decisions together, share things, meet more people in our communities and learn about each other's skills and needs, and learn how current systems work and how they are not working, we're better prepared for the next storm, the next blackout, and the next budget cuts. Something really important about all this is that mutual aid is not charity. Charity is where rich people and institutions give tiny crumbs to poor people to make themselves look better. Usually there are a lot of strings attached to what they give, like giving only to mothers or only to children, only to sober people or only to people of faith. Charity rides on the idea that rich people or social workers should decide who is a deserving poor and who is the undeserving poor, and that rich people can put conditions on the housing or food or cash they give poor people. Charity blames poor people for poverty. Mutual aid blames the system for making people poor and says everyone deserves everything they need. Charity affirms the existing distribution of wealth and life chances. Mutual aid challenges it. Charity is top-down. Mutual aid is horizontal. Charity is about control, hierarchy, and isolation. Mutual aid is about solidarity, liberation, and participation. People are scared and angry right now and trying to find ways to fight back and support each other. Building mutual aid projects is a way to plug people in, build shared understandings of current conditions, offer meaningful support to vulnerable people, and prepare for the coming disasters. Mutual aid work is not easy. It means forming lasting commitments to doing hard work, collaborating with people even when we have conflict, and facing the heart-wrenching realities of the systems we live under. It is also deeply satisfying work that transforms us from being exasperated, passive observers of the shitstorm we're living in to inspired builders of the new world we desperately crave and need. Stop believing in authority and start believing in each other. We're all we've got. We're all we need.
Mutual aid, and perhaps a miraculous event, is about seeing different possibilities. What does this all mean for us here at Wildwood? What does this all mean for the church as a whole? Does our faith play a role in how we do mutual aid? I think so. I think we as followers of Christ, as Anabaptists and Mennonites, are called to visit the imprisoned, feed the hungry, and clothe the naked. We are called to walk with one another, not just other Christians, but humanity in general. I want to close with a clip from an interview with Nadia Boltz Weber from the On Being podcast. Like, I don't think faith is given in sufficient quantity to individuals necessarily. I think it's given in sufficient quantity to communities. And the same with that whole thing, like God will not give you more than you can bear. I don't think God will give you more than a community can bear. And we've individualized this thing of faith so much in a way that makes it inaccessible to people because they're like, well, I don't know if I believe this. I don't, like the Apostles' Creed, I, don't, I can't say the creed because I don't know if I believe every line in the creed. I'm like, oh my God, nobody blinds every, nobody believes every line in the creed. But in a room of people, in a room of people, for each line of the creed, somebody believes it. So we're covered, right? So it's not... This is Western individualism run amok in religion. It's not your creed. It's the church's creed. And I think we've really lost track of that in this like personal me and Jesus, how I feel, what my piety is, my personal prayer life, all of that stuff. And we've lost the beauty of this thing is really about community. It always has been the body of Christ. Our faith by its very nature is communal. We celebrate that in myriad ways, including communion, congregational prayer, and singing. Naturally, this must also extend into our everyday lives. By listening to the stories of marginalized people, humanizing them, standing with them against the oppressions and aggressions they face, and plugging in to mutual aid projects, we become the ears, feet, hands and heart of Christ in the world.